Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Standpoint Dialogue. That's uh, an event we run in collaboration with Standpoint Magazine. Um, we have the editor of Standpoint with us tonight and he'll uh, be running the show in a minute. Um, I'm Simon Glendening and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy. And our special guest tonight uh, burst onto an international scene with what I think she feared might never happen, a, a, a successful novel, her eighth. Uh, we need to talk about Kevin. It was first published in 2003, and it won the prestigious Orange Prize for Fiction in 2005. Now, I doubt there are many of you here tonight who've not read it. Perhaps uh, none of you will have not read it. But my brief introduction tonight is not going to be a spoiler for any of you Kevin Virgins. It's set in uh, pre-9-11 America. Uh, the, the novel gives a rich and faithful tour of what at one point is called What Passes for a Fruitful Existence in Our Time. Now, Kevin, the chap in the title, is indeed a child of our time and is, it's said late in the book, a bad boy. Now, a feature of this time is what Kevin's mother calls its ultra-secular character. Specifically, we're surrounded, she says, by this ultra-secular notion that whenever bad things happen, someone must be held accountable. Someone or something. For example, halo-wrapped parents might, quote, claim that their son failed his math test because of attention deficit disorder and not because he spent the night at a video arcade instead of studying complex fractions. Someone or something must be held accountable. One view canvassed in the book gives us a kind of scientific spin on that idea. Life, someone says, is a collection of cells and electronic, electrical impulses. And so if there's something wrong with your child, then fundamentally this is because something is mechanically wrong. It's a broken machine which can be fixed. Another view gives the issue a moralizing spin. It's time, somebody says, it's time we parents start accepting responsibility for our children's destructive behaviour. So it's not medication, but discipline, parental control that's needed. The answer, somebody says, the answer, if there is one, is the parents. Well, broaching what at one point is called the insidious nihilism of modern life, the book does not claim to know how best to talk about Kevin. But scientism and moralism both seem utterly inadequate and intellectualist theorising is found wanting too. Little is to be learned from what is called pat sociological aphorisms about alienation or a cheap psychological construct like attachment disorder. Well, perhaps beyond the moral and psychological certainties of this ultra-secular story of accountability, perhaps what the book teaches, book teaches is that we need to acknowledge that we do not know so well who we are or what, if anything, makes us who we are. And the book encourages us then to take on and challenge many of the shibboleths, the pat aphorisms and cheap constructs which promise a quick fix solution where there is none. We just better talk about what we do not talk about. 
Well, Daniel Johnson, editor of Standpoint, is no stranger to such discussions, and we're grateful to him for assisting us this evening by conducting the dialogue. A dialogue with someone who is also a regular contributor to Standpoint now, boldly taking on new and equally challenging topics. So if you please welcome Lionel Schreiber. Well, uh, thank you very much, Simon, for that. Um, and it's great to see you, Lionel. Um, uh, Lionel's husband, uh, Jeff, uh, has just literally flown in from New York, uh, and Lionel spends quite a lot of the year uh, there. Uh, so we're very lucky indeed to have her here this evening. Um, now, to go straight in, into the, the heart of the, uh, the topic, I mean, since Simon's given us that very interesting uh, opening uh, thoughts about um, we need to talk about Kevin perhaps we should look at that book first in the, in the wider context of, of our theme fiction and reality why, why writing novels in a world weirder than anything you could make up uh, is that's the way Lionel experiences it I think um, and uh, I'm sure that strikes a chord with everybody here um, you only have to open your newspaper pretty much any day uh, to, if you still read a newspaper that is, um, which I hope you do, uh, being a journalist, that um, you, uh, you will come across things you literally couldn't have made up uh, and that seem much weirder than even the strangest fantasy novel. Um, I mean, uh, you know, the idea, for example, that um, uh, you know, green ideology should be a religion, um, which um, you know used to be thought of as a kind of uh, insult uh, by by Greens, but now it seems um, you know courts of the land are according uh, according at the same status as a religion, um, uh, with all kinds of bizarre consequences. I mean, where do you stop once you've decided that um, almost any belief you have uh, should be treated like a religion? Um, or um, I mean, another example. Uh, of something very strange which maybe I'll talk about a little in, in, in a minute uh, was uh, what happened 20 years ago on Monday, the, um, the fall of the Berlin Wall um, something which uh, was literally unimaginable uh, to any of the people involved until it happened um, so I mean we're all quite familiar with the idea that um, the world is weirder than, uh, than fiction but that doesn't mean that fiction doesn't have a vital role to play uh, in interpreting that world um, I mean here I must apologise by the way that uh, we don't have copies of Lionel's books uh, for sale this evening um, but uh, we are going to talk about them and I, 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 I'm going to relentlessly plug them to you because uh, they are all fairly recently uh, in some cases uh, back in print uh, and uh, easily available from any good bookshop anyway we need to talk about Kevin um, just to throw it straight at you, at you um, Lionel um, isn't the thing missing uh, from all those sort of glib explanations uh, of, of what happens in this book um, the concept of evil um, the concept of something very human but uh, nonetheless very stark and uh, alarming um, something which we don't really like to confront 
I think we do like to confront it. That is, I think we enjoy calling people evil all the time. Uh, it's a word I'm not completely comfortable with. Uh, the, it's not a word that we commonly apply to ourselves. And I think that makes it suspect. Evil means someone else, necessarily. I've never met anybody who called themselves evil. Uh, it tends to be a label that depersonalizes, dehumanizes, and essentially lets you off the hook from understanding that person. I don't have any trouble calling acts evil. And there's no question in We Need to Talk About Kevin that what Kevin does, kill nine people at his high school, is evil and unnecessary. It, uh, and I think he may himself intend it uh, to seem evil as an act of evil, but whether or not the boy himself is evil is up for grabs. Um, it's in some ways a religious question, it's in some ways a sociological question, but even sociologically, if you simply say Kevin is evil, then you don't have to understand him any further. It's a way of closing the door. And I think that that has political pertinence in other realms. If we simply call Islamic terrorists evil, then we don't need to understand them anymore. They have simply become, uh, behind door number three, the unacceptable. In that way, it's really a, a circular definition because evil people are people who do evil things. And so it doesn't really get you anywhere. You don't get inside that person. You don't understand why he does it. And because people don't call themselves evil, that means that the experience of the person who's doing something evil is not of evil. Uh, Islamic terrorists, I assume, are filled with religious fervor and believe that they are serving their God and serving some higher purpose. Um, obviously, for those of us on the outside, it's rather difficult to fathom what that higher purpose is. But uh, as much as the, the Kevin, the book, takes on the issue of evil, I think at the end of the day it presents it as a slippery concept and a suspect concept. Uh, and it's not to say that we don't do terrible things and that the human race is, is clearly and historically capable of hideous evil. But one of the difficult things about understanding human history is that the people who commit those atrocities don't experience them as, as, as doing bad. Is this one of the examples where fiction, in the widest sense, um, is a very necessary tool that we create for ourselves to try and understand why we do these things. Um, uh, talking to my daughter the other day about Othello um, and the character of Iago, um, a figure who is so inhuman that some critics have even like to describe him as a kind of personification of the devil, uh, so not really a human being at all. Um, uh, but uh, isn't evil what Kant, for example, called radical evil? Uh, St. Augustine would have called original sin. There's lots of different ways of describing this force. But isn't this something that we all have within us? Um, I agree with you entirely that uh, to simply call Kevin 
an evil person is is a cop out. You know, it's it's a way of not dealing with the phenomenon properly. Um, and oddly enough, nobody in the story actually quite does that, do they? I mean, they they all prefer to blame the circumstances, the mother, the you know, they'd almost rather not do that. But uh, but it's true. I mean, that is the simple tabloid kind of interpretation of crimes of this kind. Um, but uh, without, without falling into the trap of saying we are all guilty, isn't there some element within us that enables us to understand this kind of atrocity? Um, is it completely incomprehensible? Or, I mean, it, it would be incomprehensible, wouldn't it, if, if we didn't have some intuitive knowledge of our own ability not to commit, you know, appalling acts of murder and mayhem, but, uh, but even quite small um, acts of evil. Um, I'm trying to get at the, the, well, the, this, this fiction reality thing. You know, what at we, what point yes, we cross the, what we the line? What we regard as um, uh, as being wicked usually involves not taking on board the full humanity of other people. It's a way of wiping them out so that you you act in such a way that is oblivious to their existence and the importance of their existence. Um, so that's what Kevin does. But that, we do that with each other to some degree all the time, sometimes quite casually. Uh, sometimes in such a small instance as being at a, at a supermarket checkout and we don't look the person who's selling us our groceries in the eye, we deal with them as, as a machine, Right? And we do that to each other all the time. In fact, urban life almost demands it. Walking here, there were many people on the street. And as far as I was concerned, they were simply obstacles. I didn't really look at them. I had no feeling for them. You know, we can't deal with the full humanity around us all the time. We would just overload. But if you get too good at that, then you walk through the world by yourself. Um, certainly uh, a psychopath which sometimes is a word that's been applied to this main character uh, is, a, is someone who is incapable of empathy and therefore does not does not regard other people around him as, as living souls to, to be safeguarded and recognized but we're all psychopaths to some degree and, you know, you were saying the, the value of the novel. I think we can be very oblivious of each other, but <clears throat> a good novel will take you into these people and into their lives. A good novel will make you take other people seriously whom you didn't necessarily. I mean, uh, John Cheever has a, a couple of beautiful short stories about... You know, the man who runs the lift in his apartment. Another one of those people that we would often just black out, deal with as part of the machine. And a short story like that invites you into the life and the reality of of a character that you wouldn't necessarily take seriously, take for granted. Uh, that you would. The writer insists that you recognize the full humanity of that character. 
It's one of the things I think this, that is socially useful about fiction is that it is a vehicle for empathy, and therefore it is a vehicle for good, yeah. because empathy is where goodness starts, and lack of empathy is is where where evil starts. Yes. Does it worry you at all that this particular book, um, you know, you've written quite a few novels, and they're all, um, I haven't read all of them, but I've read nearly all of them, um, they're all very fine uh, accounts of different aspects of human experience. But it was this particular one which dealt with a very extreme uh, case, uh, as you say, a psychopathic uh, example, uh, which somehow, you know, hit the spot which which became a worldwide phenomenon, sold millions. Um, so clearly, although we don't like to really confront evil, either in ourselves or, or in others, we are fascinated by it. We, we like to read about it, and perhaps we like to read about it in fictional form even more uh, than non-fiction. Um, though, you know, no one would sell any newspapers if we didn't also like to read about it in real life. Um, but uh, what I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm asking is, um, is there something about the moral purpose of literature, of fiction, uh, that helps us to exist in a world which is a fallen world, a world in which... Um, uh, if you like, the Enlightenment ideal, uh, sort of optimistic, best of all possible worlds, actually isn't the one we live in. Um, and one of the ways in which we cope with that uh, is through fiction, that somehow it makes the world more bearable. Um, if we read about either terrible things or maybe just slightly unpleasant things happening to, to people uh, in novels or um, on the stage or in films? Well, I think uh, popular fiction, uh, and I would extend this to films as well, would uh, often attract a, a fantasy in the audience. That is, the truth of the matter is that most of us are constrained in our behavior by the empathy I'm talking about. Most of us, I'm hoping, will not go out on the street tonight and stab someone for fun, right? It's just not going to occur to us. But there is a, a uh, an infantile impulse, and there has to be, uh, or these films and books wouldn't sell so many copies, to inhabit that world where we are no longer morally constrained. And... It's satisfying to watch people behave in a destructive and murderous fashion because it gets that out of our system and then we don't have to blow things up and um, mow people down with AK-47s. It's, uh, and, and in this way, it's very, very healthy. If that is in us and if we need to, to experience that kind of destruction... It's far better that we see it in a movie or read it in a book. Uh, in literature, of course, uh, it's going to be it's, it, ideally a little more nuanced. And there are other satisfactions as well. You don't not only want to see T-34 
people acting abysmally in a way that you, you can't and blowing things up in a way that you can't. But then uh, you see people who, who do those sorts of things get their just desserts. In um, the 9-11 was probably the premier example of this is weirder than we could make up. Or if it were a book, it would be over the top. Uh, but it doesn't have the satisfactions of fiction. The people who did it, in a way, got away with it because uh, they willingly committed suicide. The buildings did fall down. The truth of the matter is there weren't any heroes. As hard as a couple of films have tried to generate them, um, they, everybody died. And it's, it, it's not a very satisfying story. And furthermore, the people who did it have really kick-started a movement that was already underway, and, um, and that, that incident, has, far from being a cautionary tale in the Islamic world, is an inspiration. This is a big drag. Now, if I were writing that book, that's not what would happen. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons we go to fiction instead of the newspaper. Mm. It, it, it be, this is the opposite of the desire to see destruction and, and murderousness. We also have a desire for justice. And sometimes fiction is the only place we can find it. I seem to remember it was Karl Heinz Stockhausen, wasn't it, who said this is the greatest work of art in the history of the world. Um, anyway, he's no longer with us, so perhaps we should forgive him that. But um, the, uh, another of your books, uh, Lionel, deals with uh, this kind of radical evil, um, game control, uh, which, for those of you who haven't read it, uh, is set in Africa, and concerns a man um, uh, who, an expert on demography, um, who conceives a sort of diabolical plan uh, to reduce the world's population uh, to a manageable level. Uh, I love that book. But, uh, um, I mean, I won't spoil the story by, by explaining what, what happens. I mean, there is, a, there is, of course, a twist at the end, as there always is with Lionel's books. Um, but uh, in this case, uh, the, whole, the whole thing is so sort of, I mean, it's on a, on a more cosmic scale than, than uh, Kevin. It was definitely um, an effort uh, to write a book that was uh, on a larger scale than reality. I think I will at least blow the premise for you, because it's, a, it's about a man who has decided to try to engineer some kind of a pathogen that will kill two billion people overnight. <laughs> um, though, of course, in, in a nuclear world, that's not completely outside reality. Uh, but it's a good example of what we were talking about, that people who do, do, or in this case attempt to do evil things, don't think of themselves as evil, because as far as my protagonist, Calvin Piper, is concerned, he's saving humanity. He, he's convinced that we are going to be overpopulating ourselves into extinction, and so the only way to save humanity is to reduce 
the size of the population so that the uh, carrying capacity of the planet is not exceeded. There's a certain grim logic to it, as a matter of fact. And as we've seen since the book was published in 1994, uh, contraception's not working. And we're already destined to have at least 9 billion, if not 9.5 billion people by 2050. Uh, and so actually death control does work better than, uh, than birth control. It was a, it, this book was really a lot of fun to write. Um, <laughs> and again, you know, here's your author getting the impulse to evil out of her system. And, <laughs> um, but it's the kind of story that people tell themselves when they get up to no good. And I think that's what, what is so solid about that novel is that the logic is that the, the scientific logic of it is really quite impeccable. And that, that's how you get into trouble. And it, it, um, it, it is a way of examining the schemes we get up to. And, you know, that's how you get to the Holocaust and everything. But there is a, there is a, there is a logic to it. There is often a, a flawless logic to it. And, you know, it's not as satirical a novel as it seems. It's over the top, but it's not completely tongue-in-cheek in that I, I see eye-to-eye eye with Calvin's science. I think he's right. There are too many people on the planet. That's what all this carbon footprint nonsense is about. At, at core, it has to do with excess population growth. And this is an issue that has consumed me ever since writing that book and, and indeed before. And it's a good example of a, of a novel that I wrote, oh, it was back in, in 1990. And at that time, the issue of overpopulation in the real world, in, uh, in the political world, had become somewhat passe. I grew up uh, in the 1960s and early 70s when Paul Ehrlich had re released the population bomb and it was it was a big social issue you know our, our population is growing too fast for the environment to uh, support us but it sort of faded from view the weird thing about the fact that that issue faded from view is that the population kept growing uh, the main thing that happened was that it stopped growing in the West and it continued to, to grow apace in the developing world. And that made the whole um, issue of overpopulation politically difficult and awkward. And it just dropped off the table. It's been very interesting to me to watch how a, a subject which I wrote about when it was a little bit like, aren't we through with that? come around again and uh, it is now uh, al Quran. you know it, it is now speaking to the moment again and yet it is a comparatively old novel and I think that that's the, the, the dangers of choosing uh, 
really up to the minute topics for novels is that first off it takes so long to write and then so long to publish that if you're writing really to the moment by the time the book gets out it's old hat so if you're writing something super contemporary that is a formula for being dated and I think that's one of the hardest things that I have to contend with when I'm choosing subjects for my books is that I, I want to be pertinent to my own time but if I'm not careful I will be too pertinent to the immediate moment and then the book is not going to last uh, not only will it not necessarily speak to the year in which it's finally published but then of course it won't be of any interest as that date recedes and a literary novelist, uh, especially, has ambitions, at least, to have some durability. Uh, I've been relieved that I picked well, I think, with game control, because that issue is not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, likewise, I have an, my eye on doing something to do with immigration in my next book, and that's partly because I don't think that issue is going anywhere either. I think it's going to get even more intense. But you can see how there's a way in which I'm making political bets. I'm putting chips on, on general issues that I believe will continue to concern us for some time to come. And I could bet wrong in some instances. I'll give you an example of my um, third novel, which is set in Northern Ireland. It's the one book I've written that has not come back into print anywhere. And that's because we're all sick of Northern Ireland. So am I. <laughs> I wouldn't read a book about Northern Ireland right now. You may have heard the expression, nothing, nothing dates like the recent past. And I find that is that, that aphorism holds true. And that's why that book is not into print. And I'm hopeful that long enough will go by that uh, North, the issue of Northern Ireland uh, will become historical and we'll be interested in it again, m much in the same way that we become interested in Vietnam, uh, in the Vietnam War. Uh, but we had to go through quite some time for the, the Vietnam War to be over, and then we can go back and revisit it. But you go through a period, this penumbral period, after something is pretty much over, uh, that that you just don't want to hear about it. Mm. And you know the one the one respect in which that book did gamble well is that it's about terrorism, and unfortunately, we're still dealing with that. I wonder whether uh, this was a good bet. Um, so much for that, which is Lionel's next novel, out in March. Is that yes. right? Um, uh, this is just a proof copy, um, which deals with uh, a very much an issue at the moment, uh, which is health insurance. Um, it is, in fact, pretty much the issue uh, in the United States right now. Tell me, Lionel, uh, when you started thinking about that book, um, this, that was presumably long before Obama was elected. Exactly. It was at a time when, again, that was an issue probably that we associate with the Clinton years, the sort of early 90s, kind of overdone with, boring, 
Um, but you had this sort of brilliant pre- prescience uh, in realizing that it was going to come back with a vengeance. And sure enough, it has. Well, this is a very good example of putting my chips down, and we'll see whether I made a brilliant move or a big mistake. Um, it's a novel about, um, among other things, someone who starts out the book with a fair amount of money and ends up going broke uh, because his wife has cancer and he has health insurance. And that's happening all over the United States. People are going broke from medical expenses and ostensibly they're insured. And I had read about this and I thought, you know, someone should write a novel about that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly what I thought about school shootings. I thought someone should write a novel about that. It's like, look in the mirror. (laughs) Um, My timing is almost fantastic and it's almost terrible. Um, I had no way of knowing when I started this book over two years ago, uh, inspired, uh, among other things, by the death of a very close friend of mine, uh, that uh, that Obama would be a serious candidate for president. Nobody, you know, that I had no idea he was going to be elected. I had no idea that he would be addressing health care reform, nor would I know that he would be addressing health care reform with such urgency in the first year of his administration. So that reality has caught up with me and is busy galloping right over me. I even brought up with my publisher the possibility of moving the pub date up because when I wrote this book, I did it with some overt political purpose. I was very concerned with the health care system in the United States. Uh, I was watching people's lives destroyed by it. And uh, so I wanted this book to contribute to that conversation in my country. And now that conversation is going on a pace, and the bloody book doesn't come out until March. (laughs) (laughs) And it makes me want to kill. Um, Though I will say that fortunately, I didn't put all my chips on health insurance in the United States. That would have been a big literary mistake on a number of levels. One of them being, of course, that I now have an international audience, and uh, I certainly have a sizable UK audience, I would expect you to find the uh, specter of uh, healthcare in the United States ghoulishly entertaining. It should make you feel smug about having a health, health, national um, health insurance. That's great. So I expect you to feel uh, superior. I encourage you to feel superior. Uh, so that has a nice voyeurism to it, but I'm not sure that would be enough for my UK readership, much less for my French readership, etc. So it does address larger issues that aren't going anywhere anytime soon, like death. Um, furthermore, it is the real focus of the book is much broader. It's still financial. 
but it's something that we are going to continue to deal with, and I, and I see it as getting worse and worse as we develop an older population. And that is, we're spending huge amounts of money on individual people in order that they should live a small amount of time more. Can we continue to do that? I said I was inspired by a friend of mine who died. She was only 51, uh, and she she got a deadly disease called mesothelioma. Her treatment over the course of a little more than a year cost $2 million. It is estimated that she was able to live an extra three months. They weren't a very happy extra three months. Chemotherapy up to the end. Now, maybe I'm personally glad that I got to see my friend another three months, and I'm not sure that I'd say this in front of her her husband who survived her. But I'm not sure it was worth it. And I think that on a social level, we can't afford this. We can't spend $2 million or $2 million pounds on every individual being able to live another three months. I don't want anyone to spend $2 million on three months of my life. They're not worth it. I don't have that good a time. <laughs> so in the, this, this, this big issue of how much is one life worth and how are we going to constrain and medical establishment which is naturally motivated to do everything they can as long as somebody's going to pay for it. Uh, how do we deal with the fact that, again, on an individual level, you know, it's one thing for me to say, I don't think we should spend so much money per person, but if one of you has a loved one become ill, I bet none of you are going to get out there and say, well, honey, um, I know you don't feel very well, and I know you're probably going to die pretty soon, uh, and that there are some therapies out there that would mean that you would live longer, but I just, I think it's too expensive. It's not going to happen. So, fortunately, this book does not completely rely on the health insurance situation in the United States. Because I think the chances are fairly high that Obama's going to get his health reform bill through before my book comes out. Uh, that's probably going to mean I get a few less uh, off-the-book-page publicity opportunities in the United States. I mean, that's too bad for me. But I... Um, I, I don't think, because I did look at bigger, weightier issues, that it means the book is, um, is, has now just been overtaken by events full stop. No, and I mean, I wouldn't have thought that this actually now rather modest bill that the president is, is going to get through Congress uh, is anyway going to be the end of the story. I mean, it only really addresses the problem of people who don't have health insurance. Rather and barely. Than, and barely even them. And certainly doesn't address the much wider problem of the overall cost of the system. Uh, which, by the way, as you know, having lived in England for a long time, we have a different system 
and we have different problems. Um, yes, but you have some of the same and, problems. And we have, well, I was about to say, every Western society I mean, this, has the same fundamental problem. This or, whole um, this whole business of how much is one life worth, is, you know, the UK is in the forefront of this because uh, you're familiar with NICE. Um, every country doesn't have that, but pretty soon everybody, every country is going to need it. In fact, you have a lot of other healthcare systems studying NICE and how it works, and it's all about fixing a, a price tag to human life. And they, I think it's, um, what is it, 15,000 pounds per three months? They really, they came up with a figure. Mm-hmm. And if, it, um, if, it's, if a, a drug is more expensive than that, uh, and, and, and it only gets you three months extra life, you don't get it on the NHS. That's what NICE is all about. Mm-hmm. It's very hard-hearted. It sounds cruel, and it has to happen. These determinations have to be made. We don't have the money. We do, no country has the money to pay for every therapy and every drug for everyone. So while I'm, I mean, while I'm sobered by this process and a little nervous of it on my own account even, uh, I'm, I appreciate it on an academic level. It was it really shocked me, for example, when I went in the other day uh, with some reluctance, thinking that it was about time for my post-50 colonoscopy. And, um, and I was informed that the NHS does not do routine colonoscopies. really took me aback. In the United States, it's like over 50, you absolutely have to get one. Right? And here, unless you've had two immediate relatives have colon cancer, you don't get a colonoscopy. It's very, very strict. And uh, I came away a little miffed. (laughs) (laughs) If I want one for purely preventive reasons, then I'm going to have to go pay for it. At the same time, philosophically, I think that's just. I think they probably did their statistical homework and that, for the most part, uh, these routine uh, preventive, preventative colonoscopies are not necessary. So, you know, I, in some ways I was impressed. Mm-hmm. Well, um, without wanting, wishing to, you know, diverge into, into a whole discussion about, about health care, I mean, it's, uh, it's a system we have here which has you know, many of the upsides that, that the American system doesn't have. I mean, the reason, of course, why you get your routine uh, scans and things in America all the time is because it's an insurance-based system, and every insurance company wants to know what kind of risk are you. They need to get that information all the time, whereas a state-run, centralized, top-down system like, like the NHS uh, doesn't run like that. But um, We'd I, I, not, You know what? We'd better not start talking about health care reform in the United States because that's all we'll end up talking about. I know. It's, it's a fascinating <laughs> subject. But I was, I was going to move on, actually, to, um, uh, to, uh, to your other book. Um, tell me a bit about um, the problems of writing about very intimate uh, subjects, uh, writing, in fact, about families and about close friends, about lovers, 
about people uh, who've been very important in your life um, and the relationship between fact and fiction there. Um, I would say that at least two of your novels, um, the last one, Post-Birthday World, and also A Perfectly Good Family, written a little earlier, uh, which you, you wrote in The Guardian about quite recently. Um, I mean, well, you wrote about the consequences of what, what, what happened with your own family uh, after that novel. Um, uh, both these books deal with very, very private matters in a way, which you have somehow managed to transmute into literature. Um, now, of course, for prurient reasons, people are always fascinated to know how an author's life relates to their novels. But um, you've, you've kind of walked into this, uh, Lionel, a couple of times. Um, and um, I'm fascinated to see how, how you deal with that. And, and also, I mean, we've been talking about sort of very dramatic issues of life and death up to now. These novels deal with slightly more mundane things, if you like. Uh, things, yes, different kinds of... Well, very important things. Different kind but, of reality. Right. Yes. There's, there's the newspaper reality, larger social issues that I may choose to write about. But then there is the private reality, the personal reality. And obviously that's going to feed into my fiction. One of the points, my points of exasperation, however, is that journalists, especially over here, um, are very nosy. And always want to know, you know, what's the personal basis of this? Uh, what's the real story? Um, you know, my last book, The Post-Birthday World, is a side-by-side comparison of a woman's life with one man and, 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 and another. Uh, yes, promotion. Um, so the journalists always want to know, well, who, who are the real people? What is the, what is this... The, the real CD story, and you know, if you it, were I to let them get onto whatever uh, part of my private life pertained, then they wouldn't even ask anything about the book, and that because that the, the understanding is that's that's really what sells. It's a distraction from the book. I I don't think that literarily it should matter what how much of my private life is in, in any given book. Uh, the other thing that uh, annoys me is that I, uh, I have noticed there's a big difference between the way female authors are interviewed and the way male authors are interviewed. Male authors get a little respect. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think Ian McEwan gets... Uh, you know, is this is this scene here? Is this because you had an, an affair? Uh, uh, you know, what, and what's her name? And what's the real story? And uh, it's understood that uh, literary authors make things up; that uh, they're allowed much more of an artistic mystique; that it's all you know this this great mystery of. Uh, of uh, how life produces art, and they're allowed to have a private life. You know, there is such a thing as, you know, it, it's none of your business. But women are supposed to bear all. And I, I just, 
I don't understand that. I don't understand why I'm not allowed to have a private life. But one of one of my problems is that I'm not naturally very secretive and when I'm one on one with a journalist and they seem perfectly nice, so they always seem perfectly nice. <laughs> um, I feel as if, and someone asked me a direct question, I feel as if I, I have to have a reason to not answer it. When people ask me questions, my first impulse is to answer it. And so I, I probably end up putting in the press a little more than I wish I did in retrospect. Uh, but what I wish most of all is that I wouldn't get put on the spot all the time. Because I don't think my private life is very interesting. Uh, to the degree that it contributes to a novel, uh, then I have given you the most interesting form of it. I have tried to make it interesting to you. That's the form of it that's interesting, not my little stupid stories. Um, but there's another issue that you brought up, and that has to do with when you're obviously using people in your own life in fiction. And the truth is that if, as much as a certain amount of disguise goes into it, uh, your mother can recognize herself. <laughs> and I have very mixed feelings about this whole issue. Uh, I, I don't intentionally go out to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't relish ever having hurt anyone's feelings in my books. Uh, I did write an article recently for The Guardian about what happened when I published A Perfectly Good Family, which is my fifth novel, and it's the only novel that has appreciably to do with my real family. Now, I changed all kinds of things. Uh, though I, I did put it in the town where I grew up, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, it does so happen that uh, it's a family with three kids, uh, two boys and a girl in the middle. And lo and behold, that's, that's the same structure as my family. <laughs> so naturally, my brothers were likely to recognize bits of themselves, and, and both my parents did as well, and uh, went down like a ton of bricks. <laughs> Except the bad one. Did oh, he, my he rather brother, liked it, didn't the, he? The, the really wicked, the most wicked character, my older brother, loved the book. <laughs> it's funny that, isn't it? It is funny that. And it, it, you know, it became a big, uh, a big issue in my family, and I, I don't think it's an issue that's completely over. Uh, my father actually threatened to sue the company if and when the book was ever published in the United States. And fortunately, it's been out for two and a half years and he hasn't noticed yet, so <laughs> Harvard Collins hasn't, hasn't been served. The trouble is that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to be too arty-farty, but at the same time, one of the things that motivates writing a book and writing characters and, and even writing individual passages is, is trying to come to grips with something myself, trying to understand something myself. And I think you might all have some sympathy with the urge to understand your own family. You know, that they're so weird. <laughs> Talk about reality being weirder than anything you can put into fiction. Family. <laughs> 
And so, regardless of all the disguise, in some core sense, in that particular novel, yes indeed, I was trying to come to grips with the nature of my younger brother, my older brother, my mother, and my father. And I was dealing with uh, some of my deep fears in relation to to my family. It's a it's an, it's a book about it, an inheritance dispute. The primary uh, contest is over who gets a big house that the siblings grew up with. It's a uh, it starts right after the uh, the mother has died. <coughs> she herself died shortly after the father has died. Um, and it's a it's a contest between these siblings in their 30s over who gets the house of their childhood, which you know that's very emotional. We said therefore great fun, great fiction. But along the way, uh, I was dealing with my fear of my parents' death. Uh, my since there's some flashing back to what happened when the father died. Um, my especial fear of my father dying and my mother surviving him because she is so dependent on him and so, you know, has always talked about the importance of her life so completely in terms of her marriage that I've always been terrified about what she would be like in the instance of surviving her husband. And so I I wanted to explore that before it actually happened. Um, One of the inspirations for that book was just the increasing experience of visiting my parents and looking around their apartment, their house, and looking at all this stuff and wondering what on earth are we going to do with it when they die. Have you ever walked into a parent's house like that with that eye, right? It's like, hmm, I don't really want this. (laughs) Right? Alternatively, I quite fancy this. <laughs> um, and so I was imaginatively disposing of my parents' household ahead of time. I, it was The book was a kind of rehearsal. And so because I needed to deal with these things, that's what made the book alive to me. And I think, therefore, that's what makes it alive to the readership. Yes, I did end up dragging in some real characters from my life. Now, I put on the record that I don't regret having written that book because I like that book very much, and I think that it speaks not only to me and my family, but I think it successfully speaks to a lot of other people and their families. So um, I'm not a good enough person to regret having written it. But I don't think it's morally simple. I, I don't I don't think that you necessarily have the right as an artist to grievously injure people in fiction. Uh, and I think that sometimes if someone like me is obliged to pay a price for a certain kind of truth-telling, that's probably fair because I should have to pay a price. Uh, it's I hurt my family very badly with that book and I think that is a sin 
I think you said in your article that it would be a poetic justice if somebody did the same to you. Absolutely. Uh, if uh, you know the Lionel Shriver character in somebody else's novel was perhaps not altogether flattering. Um, I mean, there's nothing actually new about this kind of dispute. I, I seem to remember it happened, for example, to Thomas Mann uh, a whole century ago with his famous novel, Buddenbrooks, uh, which depicts a little Baltic town of Lübeck um, and many members of his family and so on. And, and of course, all these people recognized themselves. Uh, and luckily, most of the family were dead, but, uh, but the other people sure did. And, and there was, I think, a lawsuit and certainly a great deal of hot air in the press so, uh, and in fact, many great novelists have, have put their most intimate uh, friends and relations into their books. Um, but uh, I, I think I don't want to let you off quite yet on, on the, the post-birthday world, because I, I, know, I know you feel very sore about some of the, uh, the reviews that this book received, but... Uh, I, I think it's a wonderful novel and one of the very best novels about our time um, uh, to appear in, 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 in recent years. And, um, and I think, in a way, the fact that you know you happen to um, you know marry uh, a jazz drummer and there is a character in the book who, uh, as it happens, is a uh, is, is a snooker player uh, is kind of the least important thing about it. Um, you know, the the important point is that you manage to um, uh, you manage to capture a particular time and a particular place and uh, and, a, and certain pretty universal human types in the book. Um, so, would you like to say a little bit about that? I mean. Um, uh, as I say, some of the critics didn't like it, but uh, put, you know, in a couple of minutes, the case for the post-birthday world, because, I mean, what I do think it does very, very effectively, actually, is talk about moral choices that people make in a way that doesn't seem preachy or kind of, you know, out of our time. Um, you know, we all face these choices all the time, and we will never know what would have happened if we'd made a different choice. Um, and, and this is the only novel I know which actually tries to explore that as-if world. Um, and therefore, I think it's absolutely at the heart of what we've been talking about, about the relationship between fiction and reality. Well, if I may answer the, uh, the critical reaction first. And by the way, this was exclusively in the United Kingdom. I think I stepped on some territorial toes. It's a book that takes place mostly in London. Um, I availed myself of the national sport, which did not belong to me, um, snooker. And I have a, one of my main characters is from South London. And while, while he was described as... Uh, uh, speaking in an accent in a lot of the reviews. He doesn't speak in an accent, but he does use a South London vernacular, you know, with which you would all be quite familiar. And I don't think I was supposed to do that either, because that didn't belong to me. Um, but I've still found a, a large readership in this country for this novel, and uh, I've, I've found uh, some of the critical 
nitpicking has not been uh, reflected in, in the regular readership. The regular readership has been much more generous. This is a this is a more personal book. It's look, looking at personal life. But uh, there's actually a point in in the novel where it makes the case that love is one of the areas that is that is has moral consequences in a profound way. That is, we tend to talk about romance, and especially romance in fiction, is somehow lesser or small. Um, oh, that's what women like to read, uh, romance. But actually romance, real romance, is uh, w- will take your full moral measure because it means that you're dealing with someone whose heart is on a plate. Uh, you can you can destroy people in romance in the most profound way possible. You can murder people in romance, and they'll still be left standing, which is even worse than dying. Uh, it's an area of life I take very seriously, and I try to write about seriously. It's not a romantic comedy. I'm of the view that there's no such thing as romantic comedy, not in real life. Uh, so it's an area of life that I think that that literary fiction, funnily enough, often often doesn't do justice. It's, it's written about in a lighthearted manner. And in this case, there's nothing lighthearted about it. The protagonist early in the novel has to make a choice between a, a man that she is suddenly and almost uncontrollably attracted to and her partner of nine years. Now that is a moral choice. Her partner has always been loyal to her, has always been good to her, loves her, and she owes him, Right? So does she run off with someone else or not? I don't actually think that's a small moment in anyone's life. And it, it, it means, do you, do you indulge your selfish desires or do you honor, uh, honor his history, honor somebody who has honored you? you know, how selfish should you be in love? It's very hard to determine. And I think I found it so hard to determine that I split the book in two, and so that um, it's a parallel universe book. And in one side of the book, she runs off with the snooker player, and the other side of the book, she stays with her long-term partner. And you get to see how her life works out over the course of about five years with these two different men, depending on what decision she made uh, at 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 that moment at the beginning of the novel. It, 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 it takes love, it's a book that takes love seriously, but it's still a lot of fun. I mean, I, that, that whole parallel universe thing was great fun to, to write, and, and I'm hopeful that it, it's also a, a lot of fun to read. 
Well, I certainly found it so, and, and I, just to reassure you that although it is a deeply serious, uh, in every sense, in, in a philosophical sense, Simon, uh, book, we are here, after all, at the European Philosophy Forum, but, uh, but it is also, there is a good deal of comedy in the book. Uh, there is plenty of very sharply observed uh, reality, and, uh, and, and it is indeed a lot of fun. Um, I think we ought to move on to questions now. Um, so, uh, who'd like to kick it, kick off? Yes. Uh, sorry, there's two people here. Would you like to go first? And, 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 thanks. W- would you like to give your name first? Please? Yes. <coughs> my name is Martin Moyer, uh, and my question is: um, as a writer, do you ever experience tension between trying to explore big issues and problems and trying to understand individual characters? In other words. Is there a question of prioritizing? I think they have to come together. And if they don't come together, you're going to have a crap novel. Um, I, I, I think my most successful books are an intersection of the public and the private. I'm very interested in politics on a, on a personal level. That is, the way in which the so-called big issues actually affect your daily life. I think that's one reason I like the form of the column in nonfiction because that's really what it's about. That's what you're supposed to be doing, is you're supposed to be using your personal experience to speak to the larger moment. Um, and so that that's one of the reasons that we need to talk about Kevin works, I think, as literature, is that it's not only looking at this school shooting issue. And if it did, it would be a very flat book. And I don't think that anybody would have would have wanted to read it, uh, but it, because it's also looking at a very personal issue of uh, what it's like to have to have children, and what it's like when having children goes wrong. It's about a woman who is torn over whether she wants to have them in the first place, and it's something that I had to contend with. I wrote it in my early 40s. I still hadn't had any kids. And I was really wrestling with, am I, am I going to end up being childless? Do I want to take this opportunity to, to finally bear a child? I could still have done so. I was in a steady relationship. And that book is, is made alive by that very personal private issue for me, which of course it's a personal private issue for many, many women. Uh, so it do, it's not just my little thing, but yes, if you don't have char- real characters wrestling with their problems uh, in, in a way that makes some kind of connection with those larger issues, then then you might as well have written a nonfiction book. In fact, you would be better off writing a nonfiction book. Thanks very much. Um, yes, sorry, gentleman behind. Hi, my name is Patrick Larkin. I'm a, a journalist and aspiring writer myself. Um, I'm interested in this question that you drew between uh, empathy and evil and um, whether people view themselves as evil. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure about the answer myself, but I was wondering about two characters in fiction in particular that raise the question. I thought of um, Ahab in uh, Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, and... Um, uh, the character of the judge in, in Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy, and I, I sort of thought 
Um, I'm not sure if, anybody's, if everybody's familiar with those characters, but I thought that those were two characters who were both very empathetic in the sense that they were capable of manipulating all the other characters in the novel. Um, and I, I, I mean, I, I wonder if they have a sense of themselves as evil. I, I get the impression that they do, um, but I'm not sure. So I was wondering what your views are. Could, yeah, let's have a couple yeah, of questions, and, and, and while you, you have a think about it, that. no, if yeah. you don't mind, yeah. I, I really prefer to do it one at a time. Oh, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll forget. Absolutely fine. First of all, I have to make uh, the kind of confession that I really shouldn't make in public. I haven't read Moby Dick, and um, as for Blood, Blood Meridian, I started it and I couldn't stand it, <laughs> and I put it down. It's got this. Um, quasi-biblical uh, prose style that I, I cannot bear. Maybe it's my Presbyterian upbringing. But um, it just didn't strike a chord. So I'm not sure I ever got to judge What's-His-Face. And I can't speak to that character. I know a little bit of... I, I've seen the movie Moby Dick. <laughs> I don't... You know, what, I, what little I know of Ahab on screen, anyway... Um, I don't think he thinks he's evil either. He thinks the whale is evil, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I, I wonder if he gets that kind of sense of evil. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think one thing we could get at here is there's a difference between a character or a real person experiencing themselves as evil and a writer portraying a character as evil, right? Lots of writers portray characters as evil. That is not to say that 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 that, and maybe they they maybe they're portrayed as enjoying their own evil, but out here in the world, I don't see it. I don't see anybody out there to determined to do evil, and even Kevin. Uh, embraces uh, uh, his own malice he likes the idea of it but it's really a facade it's really just a cartoon this uh, notion of himself as someone who is is powerful and going to show them and make them um, admire him and because he's going to do this great act of nihilism but it's just a construct of his and by the end of the novel, he's come out from under that construct, and he's beginning to be—he's um, beginning to find his great act of malice a little silly, you know. So he outgrows his embrace of his own evil, and I—and I think that you, you know, you, you see this in teenagers all the time, um, aping the look of evil, that goth look, you know, uh, that this, this, this satanic garb. But it's just, it's just a dress sense. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything. It's just trying on a role. Um, and I still, you know, we can write, I can write characters that strike you as evil. Uh, but, but that doesn't, that just means that I'm painting them from the outside. And and the more I put together someone who just, ooh, he's evil, 
it's, it's likely to come closer to a cartoon. The, um, the genuinely uh, uh, evil characters that we see in our world almost always under cross-examination, and nowadays they do come under cross-examination sometimes, uh, turn out to be a huge disappointment, don't they? Mm. Uh, I mean, we've got uh, Mr. Karadzic uh, on trial right now, uh, and all he can talk about is his human rights and how he's entitled to have more time to prepare his case and this sort of thing. Um, and we saw the same with Saddam Hussein, and we saw the same with Eichmann, and we saw the same with uh, the, the most, at least, of the prisoners at Nuremberg. Uh, so um, it's, I think this business of of evil in, in reality is very problematic. Um, uh, but perhaps this is where fiction kind of fills, fills the gap. You know, the, the demonic um, works in fiction, but in reality it's almost always a kind of caricature, you know, as you say, a, a cartoon. Well, it, as I said, it, 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 is, it is what you call other people. After all, if you look at the Islamic terrorism paradigm, um, they think we're evil. They do. They think we're evil. That we we are um, we have no sense of, of purpose. We have no sense of the holy. Uh, we have no shame uh, when it comes to sex. Our women don't know their place. Uh, we drink alcohol all the time, and uh, you know we deserve to go down in flames. We, we are the source of evil and it's a, actually it's a very useful um, mirror image of, of what people do with that whole concept right and it allows them to blow us up and uh, if we just do the same back at them that's the same thing now I, I'm not very sympathetic with Islamic terrorism uh, but if, if, I'm, if we're going to have any understanding of it, then we, just don't, we don't just call it evil. No. It, 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 that's just like saying, well, they do it because. Sure. On the other hand, Lionel, I, I would imagine you're not a sort of extreme relativist about this. In other words, you don't think that... I have absolutely both no sense sides of relativism have about the act right. of, you know blowing up the World Trade Center or, 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 or anything else. I, no, absolutely not. But I, there is a difference between saying that that was evil and the people who did it were evil. It, 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 it's most of all, I guess I just want to keep hitting, it's the uselessness of the term as applied to people. It just doesn't get you anywhere. Mm. It reprieves you. It, all it does is reprieve you from going to any trouble, any any emotional or mental trouble, they just you know it's like it's like calling them Martians or something. But Lionel, I hate to sort of uh, throw your Presbyterian upbringing back at you, but I mean what you've just described—in other words, it's the act that is evil rather than the person—that is actually perfectly orthodox Christian teaching. Always has been. Dad would be pleased. <laughs> Let's have another question. Yes, sir. Oh, sorry, you haven't asked yours yet. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay, well, you go first, and then you next.
of experience appears when you find that difficult to write because you have too many conflicting ideas in your mind. And when this starts to happen, how do you manage to crystallize your thoughts? And my second, my second question is, uh, what do you think is the most important attribute to be a great novelist? Thank you. The most important attribute to be a great novelist? Compassion. Other than that, hard work. <laughs> um, and your first question, just remind me. Writer's block. I haven't... I guess I've never experienced writer's block per se. Um, I always try to have an idea perking in the back of my head while I'm writing my current book. So I try to keep one ahead of myself. Um, and that's relaxing. So it gives me a sense that, that I, I, I will have something to do when I finish a manuscript. I think it's a probably a good policy. Um, it could happen that I don't get another idea in time. Um, too many. Mm -hmm. I, I'll tell you what. I, I write. I write a lot of journalism, and I think that I get uh, many of the glamorous ideas out of my head that way. It's useful to me. It's a kind of disgorgement of smaller things that are bugging me or or concerning me in some way that I can get out very quickly. And, and that means I can save myself for, you know, a single book, focused book, right? So actually, I, I think that's, a, that's one technique for me of simplifying my head. Um, hi. Um, my name is Simon Halliday. I'm an economics grad student. Um, so my first question is um, about your discussion of justice. And I'm not convinced that people want to witness justice so much as they often want to witness retribution. Um, and my second question, is, I think, related to the title is, what about not writing novels in a world where anything you could make up? Um, what comes into my mind is um, Annie Dillard, who just decided that she was going to stop writing after her final novel, um, The Matries, and she just really didn't want to tell anyone why. She just, I'm stopping now, thank you. Um, I'm just wondering, like, what would make you stop? Stop writing altogether? Yes. Novels, mostly. At all? Yes. I think the only thing that would stop me writing... Uh, novels was just not getting another good idea and it's I, one of the dangers of this profession is that you're expected to keep the assembly line going and I'm sure you've all read books where you have this feeling oh, two book contract had one due right? There's something just lame about it or workmanlike I sometimes read a book and I can tell the author didn't have a good time writing it. That, and it's a very bad feeling. It gives the book a very bad feeling. It, it means you don't want to read it either. Um, and 
there's so many books in the world, arguably way too many books in the world. It doesn't really help anybody to bring more of them into existence without a real sense of mission, right? And if I didn't have that sense of mission, I hope I would have the integrity to um, to stop producing. I, I hate the idea of simply continuing to write because I am a writer. I am a novelist, and therefore I must write novels. I mean, and that does happen to people. I think there are, there are plenty of writers who just get written out. They get played out, and they're producing in a mechanical, habitual fashion. It's the way they fill their time. They don't have anything else to do. It's how they understand themselves. It's how it's what other people understand themselves as, and um, and they have publishers and agents who want them to produce manuscripts. And they should have shut up a long time ago. <laughs> You're not going to name any names, are you, Lionel? Well, you know, one, one of the problems with this profession is it doesn't have a retirement age. And it, could, it, it probably should do. <laughs> now, you, you had an earlier question about, about what? Um, justice versus retribution. Well, you know, uh, for a lot of people, retribution is the same as justice. Uh, it's, retribution is a form of justice. Um, now, in, in, in real life, uh, and this 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 comes up in Kevin actually, it yeah, does, yeah, because uh, it's specifically in relation to you remember the you've read it, okay, but uh, this this won't ruin it. You remember Mary Wolford, the mother of one of the girls who was killed, and she brings a civil suit. Uh, blaming the mother for having raised her child badly, and that's why this happened. Uh, and there have been such suits in real school shooting incidents. What what the narrator comes to understand, what really pains the narrator about this civil suit, is that even if Mary Wolford were to win, she wouldn't feel any better. Because what she wants is not retribution. She wants her daughter back. And I think that's true of a lot of uh, uh, retribution paradigms. They don't work. That's the, real, that's the biggest problem with vengeance. Not that it's morally wrong and you should turn the other cheek. It doesn't work. Jessica. Uh, I should mention Jessica Duchenne is is the music critic of uh, Standpoint and also distinguished novelist herself. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, the weapon that Kevin uses. Did you ever consider giving him a gun rather than a crossbow? Not for a minute. (laughs) Was that because you wanted to keep out of the the whole other argument about gun crime in the States? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to remove uh, the gun control debate from the conversation. And that was on two levels. For the book itself, I didn't want the book itself to be reduced to a, well, obviously we need more gun control in the United States. Uh, But I also felt that on the level of the character, that Kevin 
would want to remove that from the, the conversation as well. In particular, wanted to remove it from his mother's conversation, who was liberally minded and, of course, uh, would herself tend to conclude that, oh, you know, the problem is Kevin shouldn't have been able to get hold of guns. He wanted to, to create a perfectly meaningless act. And as far as I can tell, the, the kind of aphorisms that we have drawn from the real-life school shooting incidents have, have that, that's the only one that really holds water, that the United States needs stricter gun control. So I took it away, you know, and, and there, therefore you have a much more complicated, morally complicated and psychologically more interesting situation and politically more interesting situation. You're dealing with, with, with the issue of malice and not with the access to implements of malice. That's boring to me. The malice itself is interesting. After all, look at Rwanda. I mean, they just had machetes. They didn't have any guns. And look at how many people they killed. So, I mean, they didn't even have a really swish crossbow. So, you know, solving the implement problem doesn't solve the problem. And I thought that that, that was a, uh, a strategically astute thing to do in that book. Yes. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Um, I just wondered, you said about um, writing about the um, inheritance of the siblings, at the, um, and you said it was a rehearsal um, for you. I just wondered how cathartic um, writing is, and how would you compare it to therapy? Um, you know, in, in kind of it's, it's cheaper. Is <laughs> that <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sure, sure. I would say writing is a kind of therapy. The the thing you have to guard against is um, is getting so therapeutic in relation to your own situation, your own problems, that you cease to communicate with other people. I mean, obviously, I, there's a big difference between writing in a journal. Uh, and, and, and publishing a book. And the, the key is that a book has to communicate to uh, your therapeutic concerns, right? It has to help you out with your relationship with your mother. Um, and, and, and how one does that is, is rather tricky because I may still use aspects of my relationship with my mother, but it, it, somehow it has to strike chords in a way that you you are going to recognize. Um, and that's why the fictionalization of characters is so useful. That's why changing their names, changing what they look like, changing what they do for a living, um, maybe putting them somewhere else, or perhaps coming up with a composite character that isn't based on somebody in particular, which is really what I usually do. When I fictionalize people, when I create imaginary constructs, then I can, then, then it's, it's like putting together a common language between you and me. So I may, it, for me, I may be talking about my relationship with my mother, but it's not my mother, it's another character altogether, who has a considerable reality to me as well. And for you, you know, you're thinking about your mother. But we have between us this, this hologram, this, this construct, this, what is really an idea, 
which we both can perceive the same. If I sit there writing about my mother in my journal, you're not going to get it. But the 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 this theatrical construct, the fiction, means that we can communicate. Now, one last question, please. Uh, yeah, there's this idea that um, whilst the novelist is writing the novel, um, the actors, the uh, uh, characters start to exercise some sort of control. They, they, they uh, create their own freedom. Um, now, is this um, a Pirandello-type myth, or do you find that this happens when you're writing, um, or perhaps you retain total dictatorial control over your characters? Well, there's no question that in my books I am the boss. So they do what they're told. Um, and I'm, I'm someone who plans out books ahead of time before I start writing them, so I know what I'm going to make them do. But and so I'm not somebody who who pushes this trope that um, oh the characters have a life of their own. However, this much is true. Early in the novel, as you're establishing the character, you establish certain rules for that character. Those rules are constraining. So, uh, you, once you have formed a character and they are a certain way, they do certain things, they can't do other things later in the novel. Not without the reader saying, he wouldn't do that. Right? That's crazy. He would never do that. So, in that sense, they have a life of their own. You have, you have given them certain traits, certain ways, a, a way of being a character and that character can only do and say certain things and and if you've done if you've done it right you know you can, you have formed a character that may be capable of change so that the character can do something at the end of the novel that he couldn't do it at the beginning and in fact that's a lot of what fiction is about you create this constraining construct of character and then you battle with it through the whole book in the same way that we battle with our own characters on a daily basis. And that's, you know, that when you're looking for some kind of change or transformation, you are, you have taken, the writer and the character is battling to change that form that you put together at the beginning. Right, um, thank you, time is coming to an end. Um, Lionel Shriver talked at one point that her work was a certain kind of truth-telling. It was very uncomfortable truths, I think. And I said at the beginning that I thought it was about talking about what we do not talk about. But I think now that it's lifting the lid on what we do talk about, it's exposing something underneath there that we don't talk about. Self-protections. What we do talk about is a kind of self-protection against moral, political, personal complexity, whether it's issues like population or family or immigration or psychopathologies of everyday life, of the not noticing the humanity of somebody you pass in the street, of not being able to notice the humanity of somebody you pass in the street. And on the other hand, the absolute necessity at certain points of recognizing the full humanity of others, of their singularity, their privacy, their unreplaceability, the kind of unique value that one would place on them at that point, despite the fact that Politically, we know you also have to accept that you can put a price on three months of life. 
So, <laughs> curtain going up. Let's thank Lionel Driver. Thank you very much. And thank you, Jack.